You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. VIPs need to understand how are they being mentioned on the dark web, if there are any ideological uh, risks that they're carrying based on who they are. This is something where, uh, where they really need to pay attention. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben talks through a proposed expansion of video surveillance in San Francisco. I've got the story of an insurance company calling foul on a client's lack of multi-factor authentication. And later in the show, Dove Lerner, security research lead at Cyber6 Gill, on the doxing of the Supreme Court and how things that used to be considered off-limits are now routine. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. All right, Ben, uh, we got a lot to cover this week. Why don't you kick things off for us here? So I know I have a pro San Francisco bias. Uh, I am from there. <laughs> right. It usually manifests itself only uh, with the sports teams. Uh-huh. But this article was too good to pass up. Okay. So there has been a crime wave in San Francisco that's matched the waves in other cities. Yeah. There hasn't necessarily been a large increase in violent crime. But petty theft, property crimes, riots, looting, right. um, those things have skyrocketed in the past couple of years. There's that famous video that made the rounds of a guy basically looting, I think it was a CVS, just kind of— Yeah, just taking stuff. Helping and, himself to whatever he wanted. And no one cared. And, right. Yeah, and then there was last Thanksgiving in Union Square where a bunch of the um, boutique, uh, high-luxury stores are in the city. There were people just walking out of Tiffany's and mm. um, Sephora with— bags full of full of goods. Yeah. Uh, the other important context is there was a individual named Chesa Bodine who was elected as the uh, city's district attorney, so lead prosecutor. Hmm. He was elected as a reformer, so somebody who was going to uh, reform criminal justice, uh, was not going to pursue aggressive pro- uh, prosecution of nonviolent crimes. That didn't go so well for him, and he was summarily recalled oh. uh, last month, and he is no longer the district attorney. Oh. Uh, so there's a new district attorney appointed by the mayor, and even though everybody involved in San Francisco politics is liberal or, or a Democrat, 
the mayor is more on the conservative side on uh, quality of life, property crimes issues. Hmm. And she appointed uh, an individual by the name of Brooke Jenkins to be the new district attorney and pushed through a policy that would allow the San Francisco Police Department to get uh, live monitor private security camera footage from all over the city, hmm. including from residential ring and nest doorbells. Okay. Um, this is being considered in front of a committee of the Board of Supervisors. So the way the policy works now is that SFPD can access these private videos only in a situation where there's uh, a threat of imminent risk of life or serious right. bodily injury. There's a, an emergency form they can fill out, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but this policy would extend that to a lesser category of crimes, so property crimes, stealing, looting, uh, that sort of thing. And there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, of these private cameras around the city of San Francisco. It's not just outside of uh, major retailers, uh, you know, your Walgreens. It's also, as they mentioned, Nest and Ring doorbells on individual households. Hmm. Uh, so there are really two pretty compelling policy arguments for and against uh, the expansion of this policy. The argument for this policy is the best way to deter property crime is quick, uh, fast prosecution to show that uh, we are pursuing a Strategy of deterrence, and to do that, you need all of the video footage you can possibly obtain. Mm -hmm. uh, and the footage already exists. You just need to get your hands on it. And that's what the goal of this policy is. Uh, San Francisco is really suffering under the weight of, of these crimes. They've lost a lot of their residents to, due to both that and also um, probably uh, more so due to the exorbitant cost of, of housing there. Right. So that's, it's a huge problem. Uh, it's It's something that— uh, has obviously caused political turmoil and is is very compelling. The other side of this is law enforcement is now basically deputizing tens of thousands of individuals and businesses in San Francisco to have 24-7 eyes on uh, the citizenry. And there's nothing stopping an aggressive investigator of accusing somebody of rioting in front of their own house uh, or engaging in a low-level drug deal uh, and then getting somebody's nest or ring footage and having basically a, a private eye on the streets of San Francisco at all times. Hmm. Uh, so as you can imagine, this got very uh, heated in the debate in the Rules Committee and the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Uh, and my guess is just the way the political winds are blowing, they will be able to enact this policy. Um, I'm not 100% positive about it, but there has been a major pushback uh, from the American Civil Liberties Union of, of Northern California, who's heavily involved in this effort. Um, also, entities like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Hmm. Uh, so it's just a really interesting window into the conflict between the need to crack down on these quality of life crimes that really are plaguing cities like San Francisco and having this kind of Orwellian policy of 24-7 eye, eye, eyes in the sky, eyes on the building um, that we've seen to an extent in other cities, but not to the extent that we would see if this policy uh, were adopted. Well, help me understand here what, what the details of this policy. So does this – would this entitle the law enforcement folks to my private feed? If it was part of an investigation into one of these categories of lesser crimes, then yes, they could obtain that feed 
from you via subpoena, and they would not need a warrant. Uh, so there doesn't have to be probable cause that a crime is committed. There would just have to be an allegation uh, that something suspicious had taken place. Um, and that's fully at the discretion of law enforcement. And what if I said no? Well, then you could be held in contempt of either if it was a judicial decision, contempt of court. Uh, if it was just the police department, um, there are ways that they could come after you, try to fine you, um, or just make your life <laughs> generally difficult. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's going to be difficult not to comply. I'm sure you are going to get some people who are going to choose to not comply with this policy if it is enacted out of principle. Right. And that might force the police to have to go to court to to enforce it and get the sheriff to come seize the footage. Uh, but uh, there's certainly going to be an incentive structure in place to make sure that people actually comply with these requests. Hmm. And I have to say, you know, most businesses are more concerned about property crime than they are about the people walking in front of their stores who might be the subject of unnecessary video surveillance. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have more of an incentive if they think that this is actually going to cut down on, on property crimes to comply um, than they would to to care about a random person who just happened to be dealing drugs outside their store. Mm-hmm. So I think there's more of a chance for widespread compliance, especially in more business-friendly districts, um, than one might expect. So what's the abuse case here? What's the uh, what's the going too far with this footage? I mean, we, we know, all of us know if we walk down a city street, chances are there's a number of cameras that are going to be capturing us. If we go into a retail store, certainly I would assume that I'm being watched the whole time I'm in there. So what's the abuse case where that goes too far when that footage is handed over to law enforcement? So the chilling effect on First Amendment associational rights is a concern here. Mm. Uh, There have been previous instances in mass surveillance schemes where um, there's been surveillance of uh, protests, for example, the Black Lives Matter protests. Mm -hmm. Pride in San Francisco is obviously a big deal. Uh, So surveillance in pride protests. Right. Um, There's been kind of an anti-police movement among the LGBT community in, in San Francisco. So there might be incentive for SFPD to abuse that power. Hmm. Uh, Just uh, the potential for harassment. Um, I mean, you could certainly blackmail somebody. If you just have the vaguest allegation that somebody's committing a crime, you could get footage from somebody's uh, household camera that shows them doing something compromising on the street and and can use it against them Mm -hmm. or can harass them with the force of a rather large police force that can make your life uh, extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. So I think the potential for abuse is certainly there with any type of uh, regime like this. And we're just, from a constitutional perspective, we're going so far ground from our traditional understanding of the Fourth Amendment, which is if the police want to follow you and surveil you, they have to get judicial authorization. But more importantly, it's just going to be logistically difficult because you can't, track and trail everybody using traditional policing methods. There just simply aren't enough officers. Right. But if we're getting into this world where SFPD is going to get access to private security cameras simply for nonviolent offenses, we're so far beyond the individualized suspicion that would justify surveillance in a court of law 
uh, and so far uh, beyond this idea that simply by going out in public, you're not necessarily um, exposing yourself to to the whims of law enforcement and, and their own requests. Mm. Um, so I think it, it it might have a chilling effect on what people choose to do outside their homes in San Francisco, knowing that they're under this constant watchful eye and knowing that some of this footage could be very easily obtained. How could this play out? Could, you know, if someone gets uh, caught up in, in this, uh, you know, web of uh, surveillance, could they file suit and, and you know, challenge this? Uh, yeah, you could challenge it on constitutional grounds because of the plain view doctrine where the Supreme Court has said if anything in plain view is generally fair game for law enforcement if you're not trying to uh, conceal anything or protect your reasonable expectation of privacy. I don't suspect that a constitutional challenge would do particularly well mm-hmm. given current precedents. Um, so I would say uh, if you are a San Francisco resident listening to this, uh, and that probably includes several of my own family members, but maybe a few <laughs> other people, uh, this issue has yet to be decided at the legislative level. Uh, so the Rules Committee uh, considered this issue. Uh, they intended to vote on it, but they delayed a vote until a new hearing next week um, to take into consideration public comment. Hmm. Um, so because I don't think a judicial challenge would necessarily be successful, for activists out there, and I think certainly the activist groups understand this, now's the time. Get yourself in front of that committee, those particular board of supervisors, members of the uh, board of supervisors, and uh, make your voices heard. Because once the policy is instituted, it's going to be really hard uh, to file some sort of constitutional challenge. Although we will certainly see those challenges, I just don't anticipate them being very successful. I'm just thinking about, you know, the you and I have talked about this notion of the uh, the the privacy of of one's papers, right? Yes. And so I'm thinking, like, you know, I'm just playing out in my mind. Let's say I'm someone who you know sits at my front window in San Francisco, and I have a notebook, and I take notes about everything that's happening out front of my door. You know, as I'm allowed to do, right? As a right. resident, you'd be a weirdo, but sure. Yeah, sure. But uh, so something bad happens, and I take detailed notes about it. And the police come and they say, hey, we want our notes. And I say, go pound sand, copper. Right. Come (laughs) back with a warrant. Right. Come back with a warrant. So wouldn't my video footage be the same thing as my notes? Yeah. I mean, but if you think about what at least the Fourth Amendment says in the Constitution, it protects uh, yourself, yeah. your home, right. uh, and your stuff, your papers and your effects. Yes. Uh, those are the things it protects. Now, as an extension of that, it also protects the digital versions of some of those things, right. uh, depending on the particular issue. And it's not like courts are settled on how all those things extend to the digital world. And they have... Um, there is more of this focus on whether the person being surveilled has a reasonable expectation of privacy. Right. But yeah, there is a, a huge difference. Your writing is protected. That's the the what you put on on paper. Papers are something clearly covered in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. Um, but the camera you put up that's uh, making ob- observations of what other people are doing in public is not subject to that same type of scrutiny. That's the way the law is written right now. Huh. Uh, so, I mean, you're right to come up with that as a, uh, hypothetical because it's very true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, that's kind of the danger of allowing nearly unlimited access 
to people's private security doorbell cameras mm-hmm. uh, citywide is you're going to end up capturing a lot of innocent activities. Somebody stumbles home drunk, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're drugged at 3 a.m., uh, They somebody gets footage of you outside of a, of a house or a business, and you're subject to prosecution and accused of drug dealing. That's infringement on civil liberties. Uh, and that's something that's certainly going to offend uh, people who, who care deeply about this stuff. Yeah. And there's so many different types of cameras. So I, I focus a little bit I, because it's the most controversial, I focused on the ring and, and the other doorbell cameras. But there are box cameras, dome cameras, bullet cameras, um, right. IP cameras, day-night cameras, wide dynamic cameras. Uh, so <laughs> they're everywhere, man. I mean, <laughs> right. there are very few uh, spots in the city that you would be safe from surveillance if this policy were to get enacted. And that's why— uh, it's it's faced such prominent opposition wow. uh, among the populace in San Francisco. All right. We'll keep an eye on that one. Time will tell for sure. Uh, my story this week uh, comes from the folks over at Insurance Journal. Uh, they cover the insurance market. Uh, it's an article written by Chad Hemingway, and uh, it's titled Travelers Wants Out of Contract with Insured That Allegedly Misrepresented MFA Use. So let me walk you through this because I think it's interesting. So Travelers Insurance Company, you know, big, big mm-hmm. time, big name insurance Seen company. Seen their commercials. Yep. 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 So they wrote up uh, a cybersecurity policy for a company uh, in Illinois. The company name is International Control Services or ICS. And as part of this policy, uh, Travelers had them fill out a form and part of that form said – do you use multi-factor authentication? And uh, the organization ICS said, absolutely, yes, we do. So time passes. ICS gets hit by a number of different, you know, cyber attacks, including a ransomware attack back in December of 2020. Um, And when they go to make their claim with Travelers, Travelers does their due diligence and discovers that the company actually was not using multi-factor authentication in the ways that they had uh, sworn to when they applied for their insurance policy. They had a signed letter from the CEO of the company saying that they use MFA for administrative and privileged access, but that turned out to not be the case. So now Travelers is going to the court, and evidently this is, uh, according to this article, this is the first case of its kind, Travelers is going to the court to say, hey, we want this insurance policy uh, null and void. Uh, we want to rescind the policy and declare that we have no duty to indemnify or defend ICS for any claim, basically because they were dishonest in their application. What do you make of this, Ben? Would everyone hate me if I took traveler and, uh, Traveler's Insurance side? Because that's kind of where I'm leaning uh, uh, Me here. too. I <laughs> So, I mean, you feel bad for the little guy who got hit by ransomware, but I'm thinking like if I if travelers came to me and said, "Hey, you know, we want to insure your building, do you have sprinklers and I and fire extinguishers or fire escapes?" And I said, "Absolutely." And then the building burns down with no sprinklers. <laughs> There's no sprinklers, deployed. no fire yeah. escapes, right? Well, is this the same sort of thing? It is. I mean, you can't lie when you are applying for insurance uh, because there are very specific ways that they evaluate your level of risk, and that mm-hmm. determines uh, the policy that that's going to get covered. 
Right. So I think multi-factor authentication is the security measure that's taken to protect information security. Mm-hmm. Um, just as, as a sprinkler system protects you from fire, just as every other risk mitigation method that businesses and, and households take is factored into an insurance policy. Right. I'm frankly kind of surprised that this seems to be uh, one of the first cases where we're seeing an insurance company try to null and void a particular policy because of a misrepresentation about multi-factor authentication. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from a legal perspective, uh, this seems like a pretty significant material breach of contract that should allow uh, travelers and insurance to get out of that agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, the lesson here is you just cannot lie about having multi-factor authentication if you don't actually have it yeah. uh, in a meaningful way. And I think I, I can't really figure out a way to differentiate that between the hypothetical that you just presented. How is that any different than saying you have a sprinkler system uh, and the fire happens and, and no sprinkler system exists. Yeah. Uh, that is a material misrepresentation on your uh, insurance application. Uh, that's a no-no. Uh, and <laughs> that is a way for your insurance company to say, yeah, we're not covering that. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for all the obvious cyber hygiene reasons, make sure that your organization has multi-factor authentication. But if you don't, don't lie about it on your insurance application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm trying to imagine, you know, the folks at ICS. I'm, I'm just, you know, pl- giving, uh, trying to give them as much benefit of the doubt as possible here where, you know, they're going through, they're getting their cyber insurance. You know, the boss says, hey, Ben, I'm, you know, go get us some cyber insurance. And you go out and you get the, you know, it's your job. Right. And uh, you, so you engage with the insurance company and you have to fill out this form, right? And it says, do you use MFA? And you're like, oh, man, uh well, when they're not going to give us the insurance if I say no here, uh, you know what? I'm going to put that on my to-do list, right? <laughs> so, so you know, you 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 tell the lie, uh, but in 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 all effort, you're 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 intending to put MFA into place, you know. But just you just don't, don't do get it. to you just well you you know it's just. Times are tough, Ben, and you're busy, and you just don't get around to it. And in the meantime, the ransomware attack happens. I guess you rolls the dice and you takes your chances, right? I mean, that's the that's the risk that they took here, uh, according to you know what they're alleging in this article, and I don't see any way they're going to win here. It just seems pretty open and shut to me. It seems pretty open and shut to me too. Uh, yeah, I mean, no matter what their intentions were, uh, the insurance policy that they've purchased is based on a mutual understanding right. of the facts that existed at the time, and what ICS is representing is that they had robust multi-factor authentication. And that was false when it was attested to, meaning that's a material misrepresentation. Um, Contract Law 101, uh, I'm not an expert in insurance, but um, that's a pretty significant, obvious breach. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so no matter what your intentions were, even if you were saying, okay, well, I'll say I have this um, in anticipation that we're going to set it up over the next couple of months— you really can't screw around with that in an insurance application yeah. uh, because every policy is so individualized to the risks inherent in that business um, that the insurance company is going to nab you for it. Uh, I also, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me too how, how uh, and I think rightly so, the insurance companies are now providing um, the incentives for organizations to set their security right. Right. And, 
in the same way that, you know, if, if I get uh, a homeowner's insurance policy on my house or insurance policy on my place of business, chances are somebody's going to come out and do even just a casual inspection, right? To right. say, yes, you actually have uh, smoke alarms. Yes, uh-huh. you actually, uh, you know, the firewall goes all the way up to the, the peak of the roof. You know, all these types of things they're going to do. Um, I wonder if an organization like Travelers, as these sorts of things happen, are going to say, okay, we can't just rely on this form anymore. Let me see it. Yeah, yeah, prove it, right? I mean, look, let's take a different example, life insurance. Mm. Uh, I have a life insurance policy, uh, you know, as a relatively young person in my 30s and pretty good health. Yeah. I can get a great rate. Uh, right. But there are things that would increase my risk level mm-hmm. and— uh, Certainly, that's something that the insurance company is going to want to know about. So they asked me a bunch of questions about my medical history, yeah. uh, about various metrics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they could trust me, or they could do what they actually did, which is have somebody come over to my house and, and give me a blood test. Yes, <laughs> See, that's where I was going. Yeah, Because I, I wasn't sure if you were in that zone yet, because I am absolutely in that zone yet, having a few years on you. You know, they don't take anything for granted. If you say something, they're coming over and they're they're taking blood. They are taking your blood. <laughs> right, they right. suck they suck your blood. Right. Uh, the they're the vampires of, of the industry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean I think that they're doing their due diligence. Right. Um because there's right. a huge risk if I'm somebody who has diabetes or uh, you know, high cholesterol, that's something that's going to increase my actuarial risk Yeah, just as somebody who didn't have multi-factor authentication. Right. So, yeah, it's incumbent upon the insurance company to check. But there are certain things that you do just put on forms that aren't checked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is kind of a level of trust. Yeah. Um, you know, if I said that I was a non-smoker and I was a pack-a-day kind of guy, mm-hmm. um, you know, there wouldn't be somebody— watching over me 24-7 to see whether I smoke cigarettes or not. Right. Uh, but if, you know, I, I was caught misrepresenting that and somebody realized that I was smoking and, and drinking and doing all sorts of terrible vice vices onto my body, <laughs> then that's going to catch up with me. And the insurance uh, policy is, is um, you know, uh, might be rescinded in that context. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.
All right, Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Dove Lerner. He is a security research lead at an organization called Cyber Six Guild. And we were talking about uh, some things that he and his colleagues have been tracking, specifically the recent doxing of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, after the overturning of the Roe versus Wade decision, we saw this happen here. Uh, and part of our conversation focuses on things that used to be considered off limits seems are now routine. Here's my conversation with Dove Lerner. The dark web, what we look on in the dark web is generally financially motivated cybercrime, right? Meaning the majority of dark web actors are on the dark web to make money. But we also see ideologically motivated cybercrime, right? The hacktivism. One of the things that um, we see in hacktivism is, is doxing. Someone will out the details of of someone else, an adversary, a rival, it began in the gaming world, right? So it was that one gamer felt that another gamer cheated or or did something wrong or or slighted them in some way, and so they would out their their opponent's details. Now, a colleague of mine, actually, I'm not going to take credit for this, a colleague of mine came across a post on Telegram saying that there was credit card information for Supreme Court justices uh, floating around the dark web. So my, my colleague uh, passed that to me and I did some searching and I found the original post. And that was a wow moment because, again, something that began as a uh, way for one gamer to get back against another turned into a, a political statement against um, the, the highest court in the land. So that was, again, a very big wow moment. And then... When I continued researching, I found that this was not the only uh, alleged docs of the Supreme Court justices. Um, I found several other ones. And just to clarify, this is the the justices that voted to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade, minus mm-hmm. uh, Chief Justice Roberts. He, he did not appear in any of the docs, but um, the other justices that voted that way uh, did appear in the docs. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really fascinating here. It, it, can you give us some insights? I mean, is it is it typical for a high-profile person to have additional protection of things like their credit card details? Yeah, so I am skeptical, to be honest, if that was actually the, the, the real credit card details. That would suggest a level of access to them that requires you know, hacking, breaking into their phone or computer or something, right? That's, uh, again, I'm skeptical if that data uh, is real. What I do think is real with much higher confidence, because this is information that should be out there, but is not necessarily easy to find. Um, There was information about their their siblings, their spouses, their personal email addresses, phone numbers, physical addresses, family members, vehicle, make and model, a lot of other information that seemed legitimate, right? That information, I think, is is much more uh, likely to be real information. And that's something that, you know, someone could have done a lot of sleuthing. They might have looked through public records and statements because these are government officials. They need to file all sorts of public uh, paperwork and everything. Um, so someone dug very deep. Now, were the people who were offering this information up, Was it? did it appear as though they're looking to make a profit on this or, or are they just out there sort of for the chilling effect of putting all this information in one place? Yeah, um, no, all the information was there. There's no, there's no uh, payment necessary. Anyone now can access it. And it's, um, it, it's, it's there. And these actors, some of them remained anonymous, other, but the three actors that posted doxes 
that were uh, named actors, right? You can, as an actor, you can be anonymous on this site or you can be uh, named. Um, and the actors that were named um, were all relatively new actors. So these were not actors that really had long reputations or anything. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like they did it, you know, for political reasons, not just for fun and, you know, for opposition to the, the, uh, the, uh, the case. Yeah, I mean, they posted it. On the very basic level, doxing is intimidating. It's an invasion of privacy. It makes someone feel uncomfortable that their information is out there and their spouse and their siblings and all of that. And I really hope not, but it's also, you know, it could be a call to action where, where they're saying, I'm putting this out there and someone else do something with it. And, and I, I truly hope that this does not, uh, you know, encourage any uh, further intimidation or, or violence or threatened violence. Um, but, but the person that posted it might have wanted that. Yeah. It also strikes me that, you know, obviously you have uh, the folks who are opposed to the overturning of Roe versus Wade who could take action on this, but also I suppose there's the possibility that, you know, foreign actors could just be looking to kind of stir the pot. For sure. Um, you know, once again, it took a high level of sleuthing to put all of this together. Um, you know, it's not, not something that a typical person would necessarily want to do or be able to do. And yeah, once this is out there, then anyone can now access it. And, and this is not data, you know, this isn't a password that can be changed. Uh, the siblings' names are siblings' names and addresses are addresses. These are things that are real people, um, you know, with real implications. Yeah. It also strikes me that this is really a, I don't know, a shifting of, uh, I suppose, norms might be a way to say, it. you know, that there, there simply aren't things that used to be out of bounds anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as someone who very much cares deeply about civility in, in American uh, political discourse and horrified by, by any sort of political violence, uh, this is a step further, um, you know, in the, in the wrong direction. Um, this is something where, uh, you know, again, someone can act on it. And as I said, it's, it's frightening that something took that leap from the gaming world of, you know, two gamers, uh, in a rivalry to, you know, going against, uh, the Supreme court justices. And, uh, this one is, is clearly an actor, um, with, uh, with political tendencies on the, the left wing, but, now, someone on the right wing can do this as well, right? There's no, there's no limitation to uh, to who can do this from which uh, political angle. You know, part you know your your expertise with you and your colleagues are are taking a look at things going on on the dark web. To what degree could someone purchase this sort of service? If I, you know, had it had it in mind to dock someone, could I hire someone to with expertise to do that for me? Yes, you can. There are doxing services uh, on the dark web and um, you can hire someone to dox someone and, and they'll post it and everything and they'll put together as much as they can. And, and how are prices set for something like that? I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if prices are necessarily listed. It might depend on who the, the person is or, or whatever. I haven't, um, I, I don't know off the top of my head uh, what the prices are. Yeah, so I suppose it's uh, the, the typical supply and demand and how much risk someone would be taking to, to take something on like this. For sure. If it's, if it's just a bit of Googling without any uh, intrusion into the, the network or you know, that person's devices, then it's going to be less than if it involves some sort of uh, hacking or social engineering. 
I mean, do you suppose that this is the kind of thing that could lead to more attention on the dark web itself or, you know, a crackdown on these sorts of activities? This this strikes me as the kind of thing that'll get the attention of uh, people in power. So uh, you asked um, previously, what, uh, what, does, what does the typical person have to fear with the dark web? The typical person doesn't, you know, have to fear much beyond just, just stay safe, keep strong passwords, um, make sure that you're protected. However, VIPs are a completely different story, right? If you're a VIP, if you are the head of a company um, or a political figure or a media figure, someone who uh, is well-known and therefore has some sort of reason to be targeted, then it's a very, very different, um, it's a different ballgame, different rules. And VIPs need to be monitoring their name or or the organizations that need to protect them, whether it's an enterprise or, or politics, whatever it is, media. VIPs need to understand how are they being mentioned on the dark web, if there are any ideological uh, risks that they, they're, um, they're carrying based on who they are. This is something where, uh, where they really need to pay attention. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is a serious problem. Uh, it was interesting for him to go through the history of it. It started mm-hmm. as something that was rather niche to the video game industry. Right. Um, but we've started to see instances where this has very serious consequences on the people that are affected. Um, it's happened to people who are public officials, uh, as the example with the Supreme Court justices, and it's happened to private individuals who say the wrong thing online and then have an army of trolls um, who, who come try and find them based on their address, any publicly available information. And right. it really is a, a scourge. We saw, you know, um, election officials, you know, volunteers being harassed with this sort of thing. Right. Uh, right. And that's obviously very wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, whether you have sympathy for the specific Supreme Court justices is, I think, besides the point uh, going to anybody's private home based on leaked information online presents a certain level of risk. Um, and just presenting that information online introduces a level of risk. Because as we saw, I mean, there was a crazed person who was intending to kill Justice Kavanaugh right. uh, and was arrested before he got to his house. Um, so even if you think your protest is going to be peaceful, having the information out there is inherently dangerous. Um, so I, I just think... Uh, the, the interview uh, made that point. It was, it was well taken, and it's certainly a, a present danger in our current environment. But uh, how much of this is just, you know, we've seen um, certainly through the last, well, through the previous presidential administration during the Trump years, we saw a lot of jettisoning of norms. You know, and I think a lot of us learned that there were things that we'd taken for granted that were not policy. Right. That were just courtesy. Right. And if people are going to throw courtesy out the window, which I think this is an example of, uh, I don't know that there's anything illegal about demonstrating outside of someone's home, right? In some in some states there is. Okay. Um, I mean, there was a, I know locally here in Maryland, there's an ordinance in Montgomery County uh, against protesting outside the homes of public officials. Hmm. And there's been a letter from um, the uh, maybe it's the state police asking the county to enforce it. 
okay. uh, enforce that law. So it does exist somewhere, yeah. but generally you do have a First Amendment right uh, as long as it, you know you're not violating any time, place, and manner restriction. Right. But yeah, as you say, it's, it's a thing that was just not done. Um, and uh, we're now in an era where when norms are thrown out the window, that's just that's not just the norms that you disfavored. Yeah. It's also the norms um, that kept us as a, a civil society, and, and that's the risk of um, some, something like this happening. I suppose the flip side of that argument would be that if things get serious enough, it's no longer time to be polite. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think the the real solution is if this is something that is actually a societal problem, then you have to codify it into policy. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some of that is going to be uh, possible. Some of it is not going to be possible because of the structure of our Constitution. Um, but I think just expecting everybody to follow norms in an era where we're so polarized and so angry certainly presents its level of risk. Yeah. Go protest at the Supreme Court. Leave them, leave their, leave their kids alone. Yeah. Now, in fairness, <laughs> I will say they put up a giant fence in the front of the Supreme Court, so right. they're not exactly helping in, in that regard. But yes, right. um, protest outside the fence. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Dove Lerner. Again, he's a security research lead at Cyber6 Gill. We do appreciate him taking the time for us. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.